Welcome to a Clear View of Sales podcast. Each week, well-regarded leaders in the sales arena provide invaluable insights at winning at sales today and into the world of sales technology. Now, here's your host, Dan Silly. We're here today to talk about the evolution of B2B in a hybrid working environment and how that is changing the way we train, coach, and develop our sales teams. Mike and Doug are with Sparks IQ, a dynamic organization specializing in virtual training. Mike, Doug, tell us a little bit about yourselves and if you could also tell us a little bit about ways that virtual training is sticking and really driving results today, that'd be great. Yeah, sure. So um, hi, everybody. This is Mike. It's Mike Kunkel, K-U-N-K-L-E. I'm the Vice President of Sales Effectiveness Services for Sparks IQ. Uh, I've spent uh, more years than I'm going to say publicly in the sales profession and the last 26 or so uh, helping organizations improve their sales performance. Um, Doug, say hi to the nice people. Well, you're assuming these are nice people, but uh, I'll go along with that. So, uh, <laughs> hi everybody, uh, glad to be here. My name is Doug Wyatt, and uh, I am with Sparks IQ as well. I am the VP of Sales and Marketing, and I have worked in my career in uh, frontline sales roles as well as sales training, sales enablement, um, and you know, really, my uh, my goal uh, throughout my career is is to just help help companies build sales systems and and uh, improve the re revenue results. So, uh, you know, glad to be on the podcast here, Dan, and, and excited for the conversation. So Dan, you, you asked us about the, the advantages of virtual training uh, and some ways to make sure it really sticks and delivers results. So technically, just for clarity for the audience, we, we specialize in video-based e-learning with supporting materials for the learners and then their frontline sales managers. We also offer advanced services or advisory services. So we support that learning in, in multiple ways, including if people need it or want it, adding virtual instructor-led training, most often for managers, but even some, some other services. So it's, it's really a blend, right? And usually when people refer to blended learning, we, we think of online or virtual blended with classroom training. But we actually prefer blending the e-learning with virtual instruction, so it's it's all virtual. And in terms of advantages, I mean, there there are a couple of those, right? What well, the first and probably most obvious one is just a massive savings in time and money, especially due to travel or time away from selling, opportunity costs, that sort of thing. It also, though, more importantly for me, gives the sales reps a chance to focus on the learning and, and absorbing the content at their own pace with the e-learning modules before they have to meet with their manager to talk about it, to try some things out, to practice, to, to hone their skills. So everybody gets an opportunity this way to learn at their own pace. And some people are a lot more comfortable with that. Now, yeah, while Mike, if I could just jump in here, I, I'd point Go out. Go ahead, Doug. Yeah, no, I would just point out that, um, you know, what you said about uh, being able to focus on learning the content at their pace, I think that's the big thing in my mind with e-learning. There are certainly the the financial benefits, cost savings, things like that. But, you know, something like, like this, this pacing and this being able to have the learner take it in, you know, on their own terms, you know, in something in the portions that are self-paced is extremely important for skills-based learning. Uh, Dan, mm -hmm. and I think that's something that, that I wanted to, to just single out there. The, uh, you know, a lot of companies have had, uh, 
you know, pre-pandemic or, or maybe in years prior, uh, this these week-long onboarding boot camps, classroom training. Um, and, and the reality is, in my experience and, and what we've heard from a lot of uh, companies who have gone virtual, is that that traditional approach doesn't necessarily uh, accommodate the way everybody learns. And, you know, we've all been through this pandemic era where we've had to find ways to do things virtually. And I hope a lot of companies have realized the advantages of virtual training, um, because there have been these flaws in my mind of these boot camps and, and classroom training. You know, I've, uh, I've, I've joked around based on my experience that uh, airplane turbulence, there must be something about that that shakes all the knowledge you just learned out of your head when you're <laughs> flying home after a week of classroom training, because I've just seen that with sales teams uh, in any kind of training where, you know, a week or two later, it's like, what do we even do? Mm. Um, it's, it's too much, too much in a short amount of time and then um, no way to really apply it. So that's why, you know, Mike and I really are, are uh, big on a thoughtful approach that incorporates spaced virtual learning in a way that learners can really absorb it. And for skills training around sales, it's huge. Why is that so important now, right? Like now, because the reality has changed for a lot of people, but why is that so important right now? Well, I think the answer is, is a little dependent on the company's circumstances, right? In, in the cycle of the, the post-pandemic recovery that any given company is going through, but there's a couple of reasons, right? We've mentioned some, right? We've got the cost savings, we've got the travel costs, we've got the time out of the field, opportunity loss. Right. And the second is the thing we've been talking about, the bite-sized learning, the spaced repetition, and the ability to implement over time, giving a people a chance to learn and apply and master the concepts before they move on to something else. And uh, Dan, I don't remember uh, or know if you remember the old Dale Carnegie course, right? I was a graduate instructor for that years ago when I was thin and had hair. And the <laughs> thing about that program that made it work so well was that people came to the class one week and they learned something, they left and went to apply it in the real world. They came back the next week, talked about what they had done and learned, learned something else, then went back out the next week to apply it and come back and talk. And it went through that in the original course over a 14 week period. And I saw that program change people's lives. I, and that's, that's the way that people actually learn. And that's not something that corporate America, that sales enablement uh, teams and departments, I don't think have really maximized that capability. And you, you asked in the original question about what makes it stick and deliver results. And this may seem odd for a guy who was advocating uh, video-based e-learning, but just pressing play isn't enough. Right. There, there need to be other elements like ways to help people remember the content or reminders about it. There needs to be practice for the skills based stuff for sales. You need to have some guidance to help them apply what they learned, because that's where most training breaks down and doesn't deliver an ROI. And then even though they learned it, remembered it, practiced it and tried it doesn't mean that they did it well or that they'll continue to do it. Right. So that's where the frontline managers have to be involved to coach them over time to mastery. And when you can when you can do that, right, that can truly get the best of both worlds because now you're capitalizing on this online learning that allows people to learn in, in bite-sized pieces, apply, get some feedback, practice, get good, learn another bite-sized piece. They learn the way that humans actually think and learn. 
and they're getting the organizational support to make it stick and deliver results and get the mastery. That's the magic formula in, in my opinion. Great answer. I love it. Um, well, there's a reason why I asked you both to be part of this podcast. Um, you really are making some headway in this space, especially as it relates to uh, virtual training. Um, I know you both re both recently co-authored a new training program called Modern Sales Foundations. You know, what, what makes that different than any other program that's out there today? And, you know, could you, could you dive into that a little bit for us? Yeah, sure, we did. It's called Modern Sales Foundations. And I, honestly, I'd, I've been around in this space for a long time. I, I'd predict this course is really going to take a lot of people by surprise. Um, so we call it MSF for short, right? It'll keep me from saying Modern Sales Foundations mm -hmm. 10 times, right? But it, it's Hollywood quality video-based sales training. And it's designed for B2B complex sales, wherever, whatever world the reps live in, where they're selling to multiple decision makers. And we've really built this, Dan, from what Doug and I have learned from years of studying top producers, those elite salespeople, and then supporting sales forces of all sizes. Um, Doug, what would you add to that? Yeah, I, I think that's a, a good overview. And I would say, too, um, when Mike talks about built on what he and I have learned from years of, uh, of seeing what works, the underlying methodology we teach, we call buyer-centric selling, and it's value-focused, it's outcome-oriented, it's really built on what has worked for a number of years in, in some consultative selling approaches that a lot of people are familiar with, but it's really molded to work with the way that modern buyers in today's business climate are buying, and things have really changed, and I've sometimes asked people, you know, uh, how much has changed in the way that you're buying, you know, buying the things that you're buying for your household or for your business uh, in the last 20, 30 years. And it's a ton. And so the idea of, of uh, using a methodology that hasn't really evolved and, and updated with the changes in the buying process, you know, we, we feel strongly it's important to, to make sure that the way you're selling aligns with the way today's are buying and today's buyers are buying, excuse me. And it's really all about helping buyers buy in an informed way to achieve their desired outcomes. Um, so that's what, you know, that buyer-centric underlying methodology is, is something I'd add to what Mike said. And the other thing is just that we cover the whole entire customer life cycle. So it establishes this idea of a buyer-centric mindset with our learners, and then it applies it to sales activities across the whole sales cycle, prospecting, uh, opportunity management, and then ultimately existing account management, strategic account management. So um, it really is end to end. And that's, that's something too, that, that I, uh, I think is important for, for a, a sales training program. Well, the, the other, the other thing in there too, Dan, right. Is we tried to build it on the Pareto principle approach, right? Because I've, I've, I'm familiar with most of the methodologies on the market today and without naming names, right. Some are so big and so complex it's really hard to get a sales force to adopt them, right? So what we tried to do was to think about what, what's the 20 to 40% of what we've seen these elite sellers do to get 80% of their results and then write that stuff into the program. So it's light enough to be learned and used and then is powerful enough to, to get results. And, you know, so I think that the differentiation really um, is a blend of the content and the learning experience that they go through. 
Uh, <clears throat> Doug and Mike, you're 100% dead on here when it comes to the shift, um, especially at the vendor community, the B2B um, focus. Um, they just, you know, they need to start to steer away from their product or solution focus and start to meet the buyer on their own journey, on that, on their, and where they're, where they care and where their priorities and challenges are being addressed. Mm -hmm. You know, what does that mean to both of you? You know, what does this new buyer's journey mean to you? What is this evolution away from product and services and towards a, you know, a focus on value? Yeah, you know, it's really interesting that you asked that, right? Because I've been watching this growing trend of people talking about product-led growth again. And Dave Brock just a while ago published a great post on this. You know, there is such a thing as product-led growth. There are companies that have developed a product that is radically different or disruptive. But we have way too many companies that don't have those kind of products doing a massive product push in the market today, and it turns off our buyers. So the idea of being buyer-centric isn't new, right? No. It just isn't done very well or done consistently. Right? And it really starts, as Doug said, by being consultative, value-based, and outcome-oriented, all from the buyer's perspective. So think about it this way. Many sellers say they're buyer-centric, hmm. but then they talk about how they need to overcome objections. Right. How combative is that? Do you know a buyer who is sitting at their desk right now who is thinking, wow, I wish I could run into a salesperson who would overcome me, right? You know, we, we say that buyers have concerns and that you should help resolve them, right? It's a big difference. And so it starts with the mindset, right? It's all about them, our buyers, not about us. We think it's problem-centric or opportunity-centric, right? What are they trying to solve or what are they trying to achieve? Not product-focused. It's about getting the quarter inch hole, not selling the quarter inch drill. Yes. Right? So we, we think about it that way, right? It's modern buyers want to buy from someone they trust and they respect to give them great advice and to help them make sense of things like, like Gartner's sense-making conversations that are going on right now and to help them make a smart decision. You know, you see the B2B research uh, about buying research. And, you know, you see buyers saying that they don't trust salespeople. They're trying to avoid salespeople. We created this situation and we're the only ones who can get ourselves out of it, right? And we do that by sharing insights, sharing experiences, sharing expertise, but operating in our buyers and customers' best interest. And to do that, we have to demonstrate integrity, authenticity. We have to, uh, uh, you know, reliably, reliably foster credibility and trust to do that. Or, you know, like, like the old Burt Decker book in the 80s, right? You, you have to be believed to be heard. And that's, that's a problem and a real gap, right, Doug? That's right. Yeah. And, and Mike, I would add, you know, sometimes when we, uh, when we talk on, in different formats where we have this conversation about buyer-centric selling, um, it's helpful to also talk, Dan, about what it's not, because whenever terms like this get thrown around, it's, um, you know, there's, there's things that just people have preconceived notions about. And um, mm -hmm. sometimes the, a term like buyer-centric selling can be taken the wrong way. Um, so it's important to talk about what it isn't. And it's, it's not being a pushover. You know, it's not just being at the at the whim of, of your buyer. And people talk about servant leadership, but it's careful to differentiate between servant and subservient. Um, mm -hmm. That's a, a, a fair distinction there because 
um, if you're just being subservient and you're at the mercy of the buyer and you're doing whatever they say and ask for, that's not necessarily buyer centric. Um, it's not about being unwilling to influence them uh, as long as it serves their best interest. You're really working on behalf of their best interest and their desired outcomes. And as we know, anybody who's in a, been in a complex sales situation, sometimes buyers aren't acting in their own best interest. So it's, uh, it's kind of splitting hairs a little bit, but it's, in, it's important to make these distinctions that you know, we're not talking about being just a, a subservient you know, uh, just person that's getting dragged along by the buyer. And don't, don't be taken advantage of, don't be walked all over. That's, uh, it's very important to make those distinctions. And you know, I, would, I would say at its core, selling is simple. It's really about finding people who have the challenges that you can help resolve or the opportunities that they have that you can enable. And you need to make sure that you're finding the people who see the value in doing that and can obviously fund um, the initiatives to make it happen. But you know, that, that's important to think about what we mean when, it, when we say buyer-centric and, and certainly what we don't mean. Yeah, you know, Dan, you asked about value, right? And, and we think this is, you know, while it gets talked about, right, people don't often have a way of defining value. Right. And then at one point, as Doug and I were, were writing this, we came across the Bain value pyramid. And mm -hmm. I actually love this thing. Right. It is it is because, you know, I like to get into things like really deep. Right. But there are like 40 some elements to the, the Bain value pyramid. Mm -hmm. And so what do you do with that? Right. So I think, you know, Doug, I think you may have taken a, a, a weekend and locked yourself <laughs> in a room with like copious amounts of something or other and like came out the other end and said, look, we can pare these down to four core elements of value. There's business value, right? The financial acumen stuff and the business model stuff and the operational results. There's experiential value. People who, who see value in improving process or experiences, right? Customer experience, candidate experience, employee experience, whatever. There are people who have aspirational values. They're looking uh, to, to make something better. There's, it, it is usually related at an executive level to mission, vision, values of the company or special initiatives that they support, like sustainability. And then there's personal value, right? Because we talk about companies and we talk about executives and we talk about you know, things that they want to accomplish, but it's still the people who make these decisions and people make decisions very often emotionally and then mm -hmm. justify them logically. Right. So, so, you know, it goes right back to good old Aristotle, right. With ethos, pay, uh, pathos and logos, where you, you have to have the credibility to be heard. Um, you have to make an emotional appeal and then you have to justify that um, with logic. Right. And so I think, understanding what the other person values. And if there are multiple decision makers, they're not all gonna have the same values or, or value drivers, and they're not gonna have the same exit criteria or their decision criteria in any given stage, right? So if you can shape the conversations to ensure you understand what matters to them, and then make the dot connections to how your solution has a great match to that, and it can help them either resolve the challenge or enable the opportunity as Doug talked about and get the outcomes that they're looking for. That's how you drive value. And I, I don't think it's talked an, about enough at that kind of detailed level about, you know, making the dot connections. That's my two cents. 
Oh, I love it. And, you know, I think there's just a lot of muscle memory out there still, you know, it's easy to mm -hmm. fall back on product, right? Easy to fall yep. back on services. And, you know, I think new habits uh, are hard to develop and it takes, it takes an effort and it's not easy, but it's, the, there's a lot of value there. And um, I think a lot of what your examples that you just shared are excellent and they really get straight to the point. And I really feel that they can bring a, a, a lot of advantage um, to our listeners. So thank you so much for sharing them. So um, just to get to one last question with both of you, again, our focus here in, in this podcast series is surrounding um, the evolution of a hybrid working environment, especially in um, today's, you know, I don't want to, I'm not quite sure if it's post COVID because I don't think we're quite there yet. Uh, but I do believe that we are evolving um, to a new, new reality. Um, so my question to you both is, is where do you see uh, employees performing best, right? Because right now, the majority of our staffs are still working from home. Um, they're not back in the office. Um, and so I asked you that. And then I also ask you another kind of a provocative question here is, um, if if our employees are able to work virtually and are able to work from home, and, and we, we don't go to the office as much as we used to, um, does that open up a whole new pool of workers? Does that expand our capability globally uh, to fill these roles? Or are we still staying locally? Are we still developing our resources locally? Uh, I'd love to get your feedback on that question. As okay. that, that's, that's quite a question. Um, I'll take a swing first, Doug, and you can plug some holes. Um, so hybrid work environment. Uh, my, my magic eight ball says reply hazy. But from at least the early research I've seen, I think we're going to see a lot of hybrid and I don't think the the virtual work environments are going to go away anytime soon. In fact, I think there are a lot of companies are going to realize with a little a little shift in the way that they work and the way that they lead and manage, they can have a tremendous savings right of at least reducing the footprint on on real estate and real estate costs now there are other shifts and some things that will take some expenses to uh, you know off, that that will offset perhaps those savings you know better security and cybersecurity you know working through vpns whatever it might be but i i think there's a there's going to be a massive play for that and i think we're going to see far fewer people on planes, trains, and automobiles. Now that's, you know, again, that's a, that's a personal opinion, but I, I think we're going to see that And that to your second question about the talent doesn't open up a talent pool uh, difference. I think two things are, are impacting that. I think it's the shift to buyer centric, right? Which has been coming for a long time. It's like watching a glacier crawl. I think we're at a tipping point. Uh, looking at all the buyer research and, and, and what the analysts are telling us that if organizations don't start supporting the buyer's journey digitally and having sales reps support them through that process and to better decisions, um, organizations are going to be in a world of hurt. So, uh, you know, does that require a different talent pool? I think what it requires and something that Doug and I have both seen that is was kind of counterintuitive I think there's a gap in foundational human communication and selling skills, right? Being able to listen, acknowledge, 
summarize, stop thinking about what you're going to be saying in response to what someone is saying and really listen to them and then clarify and summarize and confirm, um, you know, using uh, manners, critical thinking, decision-making, judgment skills, consultative behavior. I, I think there's a gap in these things that the virtual environments actually expose more than the in-person meetings. So when we went to virtual, right, okay, so people have to learn to look at their webcam if they want to make eye contact. People have to learn the functionality of the tools, you know, uh, Zoom or Teams or whatever it is. And, you know, oh, uh, I, I'm on mute or uh, can you see my screen or, you know, understanding how to use a whiteboard, any of those things, those are all easily learnable things. The bigger gap that I think that virtual selling is exposed is the, is the people aren't doing sales call planning. They're not running virtual meetings effectively. They're not facilitating effectively. They're not calling out people by name and engaging them. Um, so I don't know whether that's going to open up a different talent pool, but I know the talent are going to have to hone up on those skills. At least that's my take. Doug, what do you think? Yeah, so I think, Dan, I mean, these are fantastic questions and, and something that a lot of companies are wrestling with. So the first question of where do people work best, I think that's going to be uh, an answer Mike classically gives as it depends. Um, <laughs> but the thing I'll say about it, you know, as far as IQ has been a remote company uh, from the beginning. Now, we've known that it never caught us by surprise. It was never done overnight of now we're going to be remote. And because of that, we recruit people we know can work in that environment. And that's different than what a lot of companies have been forced into uh, in 2020 and then extended into 2021 because companies who ne didn't necessarily have that qualification that for a candidate may have chosen a candidate just based on other merits and, and didn't really vet them for how well they could self-manage and, and, uh, and work on their own in a remote environment or how conducive their remote environment at home was to working in some cases. So, and that's one interesting distinction is um, companies that know they are going to be virtual can work that into the hiring criteria. And, but if you, but a lot of companies didn't know they were going to be virtual, certainly when they hired their staff. And so they found some people took to it just fine and maybe thrived in that environment and others just prefer that in-person environment that walk, you know, walking by each other's office and having a quick chat with your coffee and that camaraderie and that socialization. And, and maybe there's something to that. Um, but those companies also wouldn't require that somebody be a remote worker. So that to me is the interesting um, thing that has caught me in with a lot of companies is just the, the matter of if your company was built for this, it works just fine. If you've, if you've never had that qualification for recruiting, you probably have a mixed bag of who's good at it and who's not. And I don't think there's a firm answer of which is better for all workers. I think it's going to be certain people that are wired to do well in that environment and, and others that aren't. So I think going forward, as companies make decisions about what they're going to be, whether it's fully remote, hybrid, or in-person, I think that's going to be uh, something that shows up in their future hires. Um, and you're going to start seeing more success and more comfort as the workforce kind of shifts around to find the right places with the companies that fit their the way that they want to work. Um, I would say too, the, the talent pool thing, again, we've been a remote company um, since before it was cool uh, or not cool, I don't know. But uh, some things that we've seen you know, in our own company is certainly 
you can get some great candidates um, from different corners of the world in some cases than than you would have been hunting for. And I, you know, I'm here in the Cleveland area and it's a, it's a questionable market at times for things like sales enablement roles. It's not a real techie uh, market, although there's a little bit of a budding market there. So when I see a local company uh, advertise, or in some cases I know people and they reach out to me and, and say they're looking for somebody, they can't get those kind of candidates, but they're also looking to find somebody who happens to live in Cleveland, Ohio, who has the experience of somebody who has worked in a San Francisco tech environment enabling sales. So of course, you're not going to get that person probably to relocate to Cleveland as much as I love Cleveland. Um, so, so that's something too, that um, when you go remote or uh, some kind of hybrid, you open up to bringing in great candidates wherever they might be. And you're not, you're not requiring them to move to your zip code. Um, so I think that's something that for the right companies who want to have that culture, they're going to get some great talent. Um, and the other thing we've seen in sales organizations and some of our clients, we work with uh, a lot of industrial manufacturers and distributors in our analytics business. And um, a lot of them have uh, kind of just said, okay, here's a reset button opportunity. What can we do about this? And instead of having our sales team segmented by geography, um, where the person who lives in a certain county is the one selling all of those customers, and they're probably okay at the different product lines to the different customers, they can start to think about specializing by domain expertise and have a seller who is an expert in one product line and the best in the business. And they are spending more time with the customers who have that need, no matter where they are. And for sales, I think that has its huge ramifications. And certainly industry, some industries have been doing it that way for a long time. And, and um, they didn't necessarily have a local presence, but for organizations that have a traditional outside sales force, it's definitely worth rethinking of, of, is it better to have the person who happens to live around the corner and is okay at that product line? Or should we have a person who is just brilliant at that product line and cannot deliver more value for the customer, even if they're not next door? Right. Oh, thank you both. Thank you for your honesty and thought leadership, Mike Kunkel and Doug Wyatt. Um, thank you for joining us today in the Vendor Neutral Zone for the Clear View of Sales podcast. Um, how can how can our buyer, our listeners, um, our attendees learn more about Sparks IQ um, beyond vendor neutral? Again, we have a lot of information about Sparks IQ um, on our certified profile profiles here at Vendor Neutral. But how can we learn more about Sparks IQ and both of you? Well, I'll uh, I'll say that you can Google Mike Kunkel in sales, and I own the first three pages, so I'm pretty easy to find. Uh, grab me on LinkedIn, uh, go to sparksiq.com, uh, check out our blog, a lot of free content there. Um, and uh, if you're listening to Vendor Neutral, um, you are the kind of person I like to have in my network. So please feel free to reach out and get connected. Um, Doug, what would you say about uh, finding the uh, cool content that uh, your team builds? Sure. So, um, you know, we talked earlier about Modern Sales Foundations, our new program. We do have a, a dedicated site for that at modernsalesfoundations.com. If anybody wants to find more out about the program, um, you know, like like Mike said, uh, you know, we're pretty easy to, to find. I don't know if I own the first three Google results searches or Google search results for myself, but uh, I'm going to at least try to, to take over Mike's name in Google search results and hijack it now that he said that. Um, <laughs> 
but uh, you can look me up on LinkedIn again if you're if you're in the vendor neutral uh, audience. You know, we know Dan well. We we uh, love what uh, vendor neutral does, and um, you're probably our kind of people. So feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn. Uh, follow our pages on LinkedIn, Sparks IQ, and we have a separate Modern Sales Foundations page. We love putting good content out there that can add value for folks, um, and that's what we aim to do. So I'd say those are those are the big ones, and. Um, you know, we can also, we recently uh, worked with Dan and, and the vendor neutral team to, to certify our modern sales foundations program as part of the sales training landscape. So if you're curious to kind of get uh, vendor neutral's objective view of it, um, you can go check it out there, read up on it. And, uh, you know, if you ever want to reach out say hi and uh, find out if, if there's something we can do to help you, please do. Um, you know, our team's always, uh, always happy to, to help customers any way we can on their sales journey. Thank you, Doug. Thank you, Mike. Thank you for taking the time today and sharing the, your thought leadership with our, our, our attendees, our buyers, our audience who really cares about the future of their sales technology and sales training strategy. Thank you both. Have a wonderful day, everyone. Thanks for having us, everybody. Okay. Thanks for listening to a Clear View of Sales podcast. Be sure to visit VendorNeutral.com where you can access the show notes, discover many valuable free resources, and subscribe to the podcast.